Hello, I'm Basha Cummings, and I'm the host of a weekly investigative show called The Slow Newscast. Each week, we tell one gripping story reported from our newsroom. I think he's a sociopath, and he's just out for revenge. We suddenly realised we're completely alone. No one's coming to fix us. I do nothing else in my life but seeking an answer for this question. Is my dad alive? Just subscribe to The Slow Newscast on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. This may be one of the more profound remakings of the energy market that we've seen in quite a while. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, what impact has Russia's invasion of Ukraine had on the things on which we all rely, energy and food? The combined shares of Russia and Ukraine on the wheat market, globally it's one third. What they export represent 11, 12% of the global market for calories. There's a humanitarian crisis inside Ukraine, but also a threat to food supplies and prices around the world, which will hit the poorest the hardest. Ukraine grows enough food to feed 400 million people on planet Earth. So when the farmers on the battlefields aren't planting or aren't harvesting, what impact do you think that's going to have? And with sanctions on Russia hitting oil and gas exports from one of the world's biggest producers, what will that mean to global energy flows and prices? We've been used to Russia providing gas into Europe for decades now. And so if we're moving away from that, this will have knock-on consequences in other places in a way that I don't think we've seen before. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, podcast editor at the World Economic Forum, and with this look at the global ramifications of the Ukraine war on food and on energy. When you think it can't get worse, here comes Ukraine. This is Radio Davos. As I record this, the war in Ukraine shows no signs of stopping, which means, first and foremost, a humanitarian tragedy for millions of people, those fleeing for their lives or those left behind, trying to survive in some cases in the worst hit areas with little access to food or fuel. Earlier this week, the World Economic Forum heard from four of the leading aid agencies working to alleviate that suffering. You can hear that entire session on our sister podcast, Agenda Dialogues. In this episode of Radio Davos, I speak to experts on global food and energy markets to find out what the implications are from this conflict for the entire world, for those things which we all need to survive. But first, let's hear a clip from that session on aid. This is the head of the World Food Programme. That's the United Nations' main agency delivering food aid around the world. David Beasley makes the point that the war will not only cause suffering in Ukraine, but will make it harder for his agency and others to help hungry people worldwide. You know, just when you think it can't get any worse, uh, it does. I mean, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, a food and fuel price spiking taking place. We were already hit right before uh, Ukraine crisis with a $42 million increase in operational costs. We we're already billions of dollars short for Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Ethiopia, the Sahel. Now let me just go around the world. And so then when you think it can't get worse, here comes Ukraine. And the difficulty here is that Ukraine grows enough food to feed 400 million people on planet Earth. So when the farmers on the battlefields aren't planting or aren't harvesting, what impact do you think that's going to have? 50% of our grain, for example, wheat, comes from Ukraine. And then when you start putting in the global context of Russia and Ukraine together, not even get into the fertilizer costs and the fertilizer uh, access of base products, you've got a catastrophe knocking and looming on the door for the fall. 
that will be not a price issue, but a supply issue, availability of food for people around the world. And that will be a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe. David Beasley, the executive director of the World Food Programme. You can hear the whole session where he was speaking on the Agenda Dialogues podcast. Now, to find out about the impact the Ukraine crisis is having on global energy markets, I spoke to Saad Rahim, chief economist at energy trading firm Trafigura. I started by asking Saad to give us some idea of just how energy markets work. I think what we've seen in the last few years is you know, just how critical oil is to the running of the global economy. Uh, even during the peak of COVID lockdown, for example, we were still consuming about 85 million barrels of oil a day. So that's down from the number we normally consume, which is about 100 million barrels of oil a day, right? So. You know, if you think about that and if you think about how much prices are, they're normally about $100 uh, in the last couple of weeks. So $100 times 100 million barrels a day, that adds up pretty quickly, right? So it tells you just how critical uh, oil is as in, in, in terms of global commodity markets. Now, there are a few very large producers of oil, namely among them Saudi Arabia, Russia, and then as of you know recent years, the United States. Kind of those three big producers, then followed by a few others, uh, Canada, some of the other OPEC members. And, you know, listeners may be familiar with OPEC, which is the group of uh, petroleum exporting countries, in, in a sense, control about a third of global oil production, um, and they will cut or raise production depending on how they see market conditions. You know, and we had a situation during COVID, for example, where they actually increased production right into uh, the, the peak of the, you know, the spread of the virus and the global lockdown. So increasing supplies at a time where we had a historic demand shock is one of the reasons where some of you may be familiar, but we ended up with actually a negative price for crude oil at one point, right? So in a sense, you're paying people to take the product away from you rather than normally they'll be paying you for that, right? So it's an incredibly complex system. Um, the big demand centers, as you can imagine, as with many other things, uh, China, the US is the largest consumer, um, followed by China. Japan is still a very large consumer of oil as well. India uh, and other emerging markets. You know, so the, the oil obviously used globally. Um, the growth is really coming out of a lot of these developing markets, emerging markets, uh, whether it is China, India, Latin America, Middle East. You know, so moving away from some of the more traditional demand centers in the U.S., Europe, um, and, and OECD Asia. And so, you know, it's a, it's a fairly finely calibrated system on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but it's very hard for physical commodities to match up exactly, you know, the supply and the demand on a particularly given day, which is why you will have, you know, inventories or stocks, as we call them, sort of build or draw, you know, uh, depending on the situation. So sometimes you have too much supply, so you're getting inventories building. Um, and sometimes you have, you know, less than what you need to meet demand and therefore you're drawing out of, out of what you have built up. So what's happened so far now? Because the oil price will go up and down sometimes when, when people are speculating about what may happen. Global tensions, a buildup of troops on a border, warnings of an invasion. But that hasn't actually stopped any oil supplies at that point. Can you talk us through a little bit, you know, what has happened over the last few weeks when an invasion actually did happen? You know, has there been interruption to supply? And also there's this question of oil embargoes, people turning away from Russian oil and gas. I mean, what have been the drivers of the oil price, let's say, in the last three or four weeks? Look, great question. And I think 
when we have shocks to a commodity market in a lot of, you know, it really does depend a little bit on what the market environment is going into those shocks, right? So at times where you have a lot of inventory built up, so you have high stocks, that's a cushion, right? It's a margin of safety that you have then. So if there is in particular a supply disruption caused by, by war or by attacks on pipelines or things like that, embargoes, sanctions, what have you, then you can draw on those stocks and you have, you know, you have some cover uh, for those supplies that are disrupted. What we have seen this time, for example, though, is very different because ahead of the war, we were already in a very tight oil market to begin with. As the world was recovering from, from COVID, was starting to really to reopen, to start to travel again, uh, to start to drive, fly, all these things again, you were really starting to see demand pick up very, very strongly. And in particular, over this year, we're expecting demand to grow probably somewhere north of about four, four and a half million barrels a day this year. Normally, the northern oil market grows probably about one and a half million barrels a day, maybe to two if it's a very strong year. So that gives you some idea of how strong we expected this year to be. Now, obviously, coming back from a low base as you were recovering after COVID, but very strong demand growth. On the other hand, supply was not expected to keep up with that demand growth. Why? Because even you know, OPEC and Russia had cut supplies in order to help rebalance the market over COVID. They've been bringing some of these supplies back, but not quickly enough and, not, and without you know, really the scope to be able to increase to match that demand. So globally, we're looking at a market that was already very tight in terms of supply-demand fundamentals, and now you've added in this disruption from you know what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And although Russian oil has not been sanctioned directly in terms of you know unlike say Iran, where Iran the idea has been to block Iran from exporting its oil completely, you have seen some embargoes from places like the United States, Canada, the UK. Um, saying we won't take Russian oil, but these are really these are generally places that don't consume that much Russian oil to begin with. So really, the, you know, what we have seen is sort of uh, second order sanctions, I would say, you know, around banking, finance, insurance, freight. You know, these are kinds of things that really have, even though oil is not blocked from moving out of Russia um, on, on kind of on paper, these things have introduced enough sand into the gears of, of a, you know, again, what is a incredibly complex logistic system such that you really don't have Russian oil that is moving in, in large volumes. Of the, let's call it four and a half, five million that, that Russia normally exports, I would say probably about three million to four million right now is impacted in some way. The crude oil that flows by pipeline out of Russia is not being affected because those are going in directly into refineries. So there's no freight component, you know, no putting it on a ship, no need to insure it. Uh, really don't have banks that are getting involved to the degree that you have um, with seaborne or waterborne uh, crude shipments or oil shipments. It's really on the waterborne side that we're seeing really a real slowdown. And you can see that because, you know, what Russian oil is being offered to the market you know, so there are companies that have, you know, had pre-existing supply agreements with Russia before all this happened. So you've had, you know, they have a quantity of oil that has not been sanctioned and they're trying to now sell that. Um, that oil itself, again, is not sanctioned, but no one really wants to take it. And you can see that in the discounts that are being offered for this crude. So normally this type of Russian crude would trade, you know, a few dollars a barrel above the global benchmark, uh, which is Brent. Instead, you're seeing discounts of up to $30, you know, minus um, $30 against Brent for these cargoes. So again, that's a huge shift. 
And yet, you know, you would think that some consumers may, might be looking to, to purchase crude on the cheap, you know, whether it's uh, you know, China or India. And they are not really stepping up to the plate to, to buy this in quantity, right, in size. So eventually they may, they may decide differently. But today, even though there are no specific hard sanctions on Russian oil, it is very hard um, and expensive when you can to move it. So really, this is a very large disruption in the energy system. Why would markets like China and India not be buying that? They, you know, it's it's a product that's in massive demand globally right now. They can get it thirty percent cheaper than Europe can buy oil from elsewhere. I mean, why why would they not be doing that? I think they will continue to buy some amount, probably close to what they've bought historically. At least China again has these pipelines that run into China, really from Russia, that delivers it directly. So that that flow is still going, but I think. Buying seaborne crude, I think they've seen the backlash that companies like Shell, for example, faced. So Shell bought a cargo uh, actually uh, from us, and it was at a very large discount um, to what the price normally would be. And again, this was oil that pre pre war that we that we had we had ownership of. So you know they bought it. It was in a sense a great discount for them, but there was an immediate public backlash against that against them, and they said, look, we can no longer. Um, you know, trade Russian uh, origin material, given this kind of backlash. And that's really what the Chinese, in fact, today have come out and said that, you know, even though we need to look at, you know, ensuring commodity supplies for China, we have to do it at a price that is appropriate for us. We are, in a sense, a large enterprise uh, and that we do need to look at all the ramifications of this. So they are not looking to really step up and buy cheap barrels today. Again, that may change. It may be a price point in which they say, look, this is this is. Um, you know, too tempting uh, to miss out on. But that's not the case today. You know, they're looking at the escalating violence in Ukraine. There's talks today, at least, uh, you know, there may be some sort of ceasefire or peace agreement. If that's the case, then I'm sure there will be some of these flows that do open up. But the longer this continues and the worse the violence gets, I think the harder people are finding it to really to, to be able to trade. There's a lot of what we would, we would call self-sanctioning going on in the industry, meaning even if the EU, for example, has said, look, we, we have not put a ban on, on, on Russian oil. In fact, let us be very clear that we want to continue accepting this. Companies, again, are not really are not handling it. So whether it's Shell, BP, Total, you know, who normally would, would handle a lot of these volumes, uh, a lot of the refineries in the Europe, again, saying we're not touching this, uh, we're not accepting the material. So again, you know, eventually this whole system has to recalibrate um, and it will likely do so at some point. The idea, the thought was that, again, probably China, India would take maybe more of it than they had been, but so far they have not. And that's causing a real backup in the system. And, And the reason for that is you know, you do have physical storage capacity constraints, right? If you're Russian, you're still producing, you know, 10 million barrels a day that you're supposed to be exporting about, call it five of that. Five million barrels a day of liquids adds up very, very quickly, right? Um, and so you start to run out of storage and you have to start to shut down refineries as well as in your upstream production operations. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. How would you judge the Ukraine crisis in terms of a market shock or a game changer compared to other things that have happened during your career that you've, you've seen? We saw something similar with when Iraq invaded Kuwait. And I think actually at that time, it was a larger volume that came out because it was both Iraq and Kuwait's volumes were, you know, were out, they were both major producers. You know, so that was a bigger disruption and in what was a much smaller market, right? So both of them were producing about the same, I think, as they are today, but in a market that was significantly smaller than it is today. So in terms of a, a pure um, supply demand balance, I think 
something that was that was larger, and that continued for quite some time, right? But this may have some longer lasting scars and consequences, right? I think I think Iraq oil was able to come back into the market fairly quickly afterwards. Um, you know, and Kuwait certainly was able to re- restore a lot of its production. But if Russia, you know, depending on how the end game here goes, and I don't think anyone really knows, but there are you know scenarios in which um, this continues to escalate, the violence continues to become worse, um, and that the tide of public opinion again says that even if there is a some form of settlement or ceasefire that is acceptable to both parties in Ukraine and Russia, but the kind of the damage that has been done to public opinion says, look, that we may want to keep Russian oil out of the market for longer than we have anticipated, right, and that these sanctions don't get rolled back right away. Um, this may be, you know, one of one of the more profound uh, remakings of the energy market that we've seen in quite a while in terms of then saying, OK, well, where do these flows go from Russia? Right. Are they completely shunned or do we start to see a realignment of the energy system? These flows start to move more into, again, China and India. Those displaced flows from the Middle East and, you know, and, and West Africa and those go back into the Atlantic basin markets. Right. And what does that look like? So I think I think we are looking maybe at a scenario where we where we do start to see some very profound shifts on the oil side, and on gas you're already seeing it right very much so that regardless of what happens from here, Europe is saying we want to reduce our our dependence on Russian gas. You know we get forty percent of our of our um, supplies from Russia, so we want to now start building alternatives both on the renewable space and so displacing gas. You know maybe rethinking nuclear, maybe having to bring some coal plants even into reserve, but then also really bringing in LNG, liquefied natural gas. So ship that, so gas that has been super cooled and compressed and then is put on ships and then is brought into terminals where it has to be then turned back into gas, which, as you can imagine, is an expensive process, but allows you more flexibility than having to sit on the end of a fixed pipe right from Russia. Um, and so I think Europe is really starting to look at that. And again, that's, again, a profound remaking of the gas, the global gas system. Right. We've been used to Russia providing gas into Europe, you know, for for decades now. And so if we're moving away from that, then this is this will have knock-on consequences uh, in other places in a way that I don't think we have seen before. Now, how will all this impact on the famous energy transition? We've got to move away from fossil fuels by 2050, make a big effort on that this decade. Look, this is a great question. It's one you know we, we have been speaking about as an industry for, for quite some time, and in particular, for those of you who may not remember, but oil prices really collapsed in, in 2014. They went from about $110 um, to the low in 2016, which was about $28, right? So a major, major move down. And that really set off a cycle which starved the industry of capital and, and new investment. To put things in context, right? So normally you probably lose about four to five percent of your production base every year. As you you know, as you can imagine, as you produce oil out of a reservoir, you know, there's less of it to then produce over time. Um, and so, you know, you need to then continue to invest to, to an amount that allows you to at least maintain production, if not grow it as demand goes up, right? So in a sense, you have to constantly be, in, be investing and investing more than you were the previous year um, to really to kind of grow that production to keep, to, to keep pace with demand. And we didn't do that, right? We didn't do that really for since 2014 uh, all the way till now. And so there's probably about something like on the order of two to maybe three trillion dollars of projects that have been canceled, shelved, pushed back, um, you know, what have you. And that has created a major supply gap in the market. And that's what we're feeling right now, right, is that we don't have the flexibility to bring on barrels when there is this type of disruption um, from Russia when we're seeing the kind of demand that we're seeing. So part of what's been happening is that people have been saying, look, we really need to focus on the energy transition. We need to reduce our usage of, of fossil fuels. 
And I do think there's been a bit of conflation of, or conflating rather, of fuel that we use for power generation and fuel that gets used for road transport, right? So people tend to lump all these things together in one go and say, okay, well, for the energy transition, we need to build a lot more renewables, right? Or we need to reduce our dependence on coal and then also do a lot more electric vehicles. Whereas I would say these are probably two different problems in a sense, right? And the point I'm making here then is, you know, oil demand is here to stay with us for some period of time, right? Even if it's not growing in, in a few years' time, you still have to maintain that base load of demand. And we're not investing enough to meet that, right? So my concern for quite some time has been that given the underinvestment in oil and gas, is that you're in a sense almost cannibalizing the funds that you will eventually need for the energy transition because oil and gas prices will spike to levels that place an economic burden on the global economy, and therefore you don't have enough to actually fund this energy transition. Do the high prices of oil, will that help wean us off oil, or will the reverse be true? Given the volatility in prices, right, is that we were just at 130, and now today we're below 100. Um, Companies have been a little bit, I would say, understandably perhaps, gun-shy about investing in, in new projects, especially ones that have a long lead time, right? So if you're saying, well, if I start a project today, but they actually I don't get the oil for another five or seven years, you know, what will the environment be like when I bring those barrels into the market, right? Is it going to be a market where people are saying, look, we don't want this oil? So am I simply destroying shareholder value by investing in these things today um, when I could be returning it to, to shareholders? And that's what we're seeing a lot of is companies are eschewing sort of you know, new capital investment to return, you know, in the form of buybacks and dividends cash to shareholders, right? And they're saying, look, that is, that is what we're being told by our shareholders that that's what they would like us to do. So I think there has to be a question around what is the most sustainable path that gets us to, a, to an end point that we all want to be at, which is that we have reduced our dependence on these fuels, that we are able to then you know, reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, but again, to do it in a way that we're not you know, penalizing in particular emerging markets where they can't handle price spikes like this, what we're seeing, you know, and that does cause economic hardship, um, you know, that does cause demand destruction. I think this is something that is getting a rethink now in the wake of what's happening with, with Russia and Ukraine. As you say, there's a big push now in Europe to say, okay, we need to think about how do we reduce our dependence in particular on Russian gas. You know, does that involve building more renewables? But also it likely involves bringing in more LNG from places like the United States. Um, and so we need to maybe build uh, you know, more regasification terminals for this LNG when we've been reliant on pipeline gas from 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 Russia. And so again, you know, I think I think governments are realizing a little bit it has to be an all of the above solution. It can't just be a pick winners um, and, and invest that way because you simply won't have a smooth enough transition if that's the case. Putting our money where our mouth is or politicians deciding certain things, where do you feel the cards are gonna fall after this or during this? Well, our, our CEO likes to say, you know, price is the best geologist in a sense, right? As in, if prices do stay high and are sustained at those levels, that that's effectively that is a market signal telling you that the world needs more investment in this sector, right? And especially in you know what is still relatively speaking a low yield world, people are still looking for returns. I think eventually the types of returns that we're seeing at these prices people will then say, okay, capital needs to come back to the sector because you can earn a return that is commensurate with then what we're looking at in terms of um, you know, kind of the downside on this, right? Uh, but that takes time and that takes prices to move higher and stay higher. And you know, I think what we have seen is that even with prices at about $100, you know, we're still not seeing 
massive new investment come in. Come in. Again, we're starting to see the U.S. shale sector start to turn up a little bit. Um, but even there, you know, these are companies that have been burned badly. You know, where companies in the last few years, when they announced a new drilling program, a new capex program, would see their share price plummet and effectively be punished by shareholders and saying, look, that's not what we want from you. We want the cash back. So until companies start to say, okay, you know, and again, investors start to look at it and say, look, this is a long-term returns game that we need to then bring capital back into the sector, that's when you will then start to see that, right? But that is that is a market mechanism that needs to, to take place. Um, and we're not quite there yet. But at the same time, that, that market signal, that price signal, does it make renewables look like a, a bargain now? Agreed. And I think, and I think again, that is what we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, the, the new strategy come out of the EU in particular, but even coming out of COVID, you know, if you looked at China, you looked at the US, you looked at Europe, you know, major new stimulus plans directed towards renewable energy, towards electric vehicle infrastructure and charging and all of that, right? But again, I wanted to just highlight, right, the difference between building out renewable power doesn't solve your need for oil transport, right? So the infrastructure really for, for, for EVs is just not there yet. Your production capacity for auto ma- manufacturers is just not there yet, right? So I think that's the problem is that there's a mismatch in timing, right? So I think you can say absolutely today, you know, as oil prices move up very substantially, renewables and electric vehicles both look much more attractive, right? So, you know, instead of having to fill up my car and paying substantially more, you know, if I had an electric vehicle, again, it would, it would cost me next to nothing. But having said that, it's a long process, right? So the, the right now it takes about 12 years to turn over the, the U.S. fleet uh, in terms of cars. You're looking at this, you know, how do we solve these problems at these endpoints in the future? You know, we want to arrive at 2050. We want to arrive at 2030 in these places. But you can't ignore what's happening right, right now on the ground today. Saad Rahim, Chief Economist at Trafigura. When it comes to commodities traded on the global markets, it's not just oil and gas. Much of the food that we eat is also bought and sold by traders. Someone who knows about that is David Laborde de Bouquet, a senior research fellow at the Food Policy Research Institute think tank in Washington. I asked David why Ukraine and Russia were so important for global food production. So historically, we have seen this region of the world as a breadbasket of Europe. So it's not the kind of novelty. Uh, it's just with what has happened after the Second World War, this part of Europe was disconnected from, from the rest and even from a lot of global markets. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, actually the agriculture in this country also collapsed. So in the early 1990s, if you want, these countries were actually net importer of grains. But after 20 years, they have recovered and they have become leading exporter of uh, several products, in particular wheat, or sunflower uh, seed and sunflower oil. And uh, just before the crisis, if you were taking the combined shares of Russia and Ukraine on the wheat market, globally it's one third. So yes, they have become key uh, food exporters. And if you try to convert all the agricultural commodities into calories, what they export represents 11, 12% of the global market for calories. Absolutely huge then. So how... Have we seen the war, the situation there, affect those supplies around the world? So even before the, that the war and the invasion started, um, uh, there was a lot of military operations. So actually, uh, the ships that um, move around the Black Sea were, were disrupted. So actually, Ukraine has started to export even before the military operation. Um, and of course, now there is a war. So basically, there is no... Uh, shipment leaving uh, Ukraine. 
the game of sanction and retaliation also has disrupted the export of Russia. So uh, we have this uh, area that is not a breadbasket for Europe anymore, but actually a breadbasket for North Africa, Middle East, even part of Africa and Asia. Um, that's where the big disruption uh, takes place right now. So food cannot leave the Black Sea to go where normally it is uh, aimed to go. And markets panic, governments panic. So prices uh, increase on the spot. And that's really the short-term effect. Then we are going to have more medium-term and long-term consequences, both on the food market and on the fertilizer market. So there are two ways that this, these flows of grains are being stopped by military events for for Ukraine, even before the, that this invasion actually happened, and then sanctions. I mean, how at the moment, as, and things could change, but how are sanctions stopping Russia exporting? So um, mainly through the fact that so you have some company that doesn't want to operate with Russia right now. Uh, even if the sanctions try to protect food trade, uh, you have just a number of companies that doesn't want to do business with Russia on the spot for various reasons. Okay. It can be just a matter of uh, of communication or even just thinking that their banks will uh, uh, cause problems. So we have uh, this uh, specific aspect. Of course, the SWIFT sanction um, also make business more and more difficult. That's the banking, the, the bank transfer organization. Exactly. So for very large transactions, in particular from government to government, doesn't really matter. But for a lot of medium-sized operators, actually, it creates uh, a disruption. And then you have the fact that the sanction applied to Russia has led Russia also to kind of retaliate, either by saying, I'm not going to export fertilizer, or just also because their own economy is collapsing. Uh, the purchasing power of people in Russia is collapsing. So now they say, OK, I want to keep uh, also uh, grains for, for myself with uh, export restriction, anything like this. So you see there's a number of direct effects and indirect effects coming from um, how these sanctions impact Russia, Russia behavior, and of course the Russian economy. So what will be the impact of these reductions or disappearance of exports of food from those two countries on the world? So um, as we discussed on the spot, you already have countries in particular uh, in the Near East or in North Africa that have actually already bought some uh, grains uh, from Russia or in particular from Ukraine that are not delivered. So, you know, there is a fact that, yes, there was grain in Odessa. Normally, it should have been sent. It's not sent. So now you have these countries that try to find other options. And so they are turning to South America. They are uh, looking at, at Australia. They are looking at India. So other, in particular, wheat exporters that can fill the gap in the, in the short term. And then the two... Big question, you know, how long this conflict is going to last? First, you know, can uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian farmers go back to their field in April to plant uh, some of the uh, spring crops, if you want? But what will be the state of infrastructure? Uh, are they going to have oil for their tractors? So there's a number of questions. And for the kind of key commodity here that is wheat, the wheat has been sown during the last winter and normally should be harvested in uh, July and August. And so the question is, will it be possible or not? And here we are talking about 20 million tons of wheat from Ukraine that should have normally read the market and may not read the market. So you see, it will create an additional vacuum with very limited options about how we are going to fill it this year. I mean, you know, in 18 months, everyone will have 
propensity factor of this in. The Northern Hemisphere will have taken new planting decision and things like this. But on the short run, we, we have this gap um, that is created. And that will put a lot of pressure on wheat markets and will force people to uh, either to reduce their consumption in some places, some government to increase the amount of subsidies they give to their uh, population to pay for it. Then for the Russian agricultural production, it's not clear what's going to happen because Russia is still going to export to some countries. Maybe they will have to discount uh, their price by selling when they sell to China or when they sell to India. So we are going to see a number of domino effects. But, you know, just changing the pattern of um, regional and global trade flows has always a cost, you know. You need to uh, have longer uh, maritime route. You need to find new business networks. So it's not like, oh, we just have one ton of wheat from Russia before it was going to Egypt and now we teleport it to China. That's not as simple as that. That takes place. That takes time and that's, that's expensive. But then, of course, the big issue is fertilizers because uh, also Russia and Belarus are key exporters of fertilizer. Uh, normally, the Black Sea market is a very active market for, for fertilizers and fertilizers impact every product everywhere in the world. Of course, at different degree. But, you know, if you are in Brazil and you don't re receive your potash that normally comes from Belarus, you are going to produce less. And if Brazil produces less, the world produces significantly less food. Five countries represent 80% of the markets. So, you know, if you lose one of the big players like, like Russia, uh, it put a lot of pressure on the other guys to try to fill the gap. So I'm guessing all of this will lead to price rises. Can we talk a little bit about that? Uh, presumably, as wheat is a traded commodity, Presumably, the price in the markets has already shot up because of this. Is that right? Yes, uh, it has really skyrocketed uh, five, six days ago. Uh, since then, it has started to, uh, to go down uh, a bit. Um, but we also uh, just have to keep in mind that all of these commodity prices were rising since April 2021, basically. So even before the crisis, or at least before the invasion, we already had historically high level of food prices on global markets. Any particular reason for that? Um, several. Um, first, last year, we had a number of bad climatic events. Uh, so uh, actually drought in some wheat area in Canada, in the US, uh, even in uh, Western Europe. Um, we have a lot of pressure of a we have what we call La Nina, that is another weather event in uh, Latin America that are putting a lot of pressure on the soybean markets. Um, we also have a number of drivers in Southeast Asia with a disruption in, in Malaysia uh, and in Indonesia coming either from uh, some of the consequences of the COVID-19 or just also a climatic event. And at the same time, we have still a strong global demand uh, for vegetable oils, uh, actually, the biofuel uh, policies that are implemented in the US, in European Union, uh, in Indonesia, in particular regarding biodiesel, has put a lot of pressure on the vegetable oil market. So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about $2,000 per ton of vegetable oil, when, um, uh, I would say, five, six years ago, people were more about uh, $600 per, per ton. So you see, very strong increase. And last but not, not least, China, after the, the lockdown in, of 2020, when they were back on the market in 2021, they have bought a lot of everything and from everyone. 
So really that has pushed uh, prices at a high level. And of course, you know, all the overall issues regarding um, disruption in value chain that you may have heard and that, you know, make the life more complicated for, for everyone. And at the same time, uh, fertilizer prices were also rising. Some, in some cases, for similar issues, in some cases, due to a high price of natural gas, in particular in Europe. We have seen export restriction uh, taking place. So last September, China decided to limit the export of fertilizers. And that created all of these conditions of kind of shortage on the world market, pushing price up. And of course, if fertilizer price go up, uh, the price of producing food uh, go up. But just to go back to the key point is, yes, wheat prices are historically high, but there's the same thing for soybean and corn. Even if Ukraine doesn't produce soybean, you see. So all these markets are, um, uh, if you want, interconnected. And uh, that's a concern, basically, even if you don't consume a lot of wheat uh, and you basically uh, are in the livestock sectors and you try to feed your animals with soybean meals or corn, you are also impacted by the situation. Which kind of brings me to potential solutions. You'd think, okay, we'll stop eating this, we'll eat something else. But in fact, if food price food prices are high across the board, that's probably not really an option. I mean, what are the options for countries that are very reliant on Russian and Ukrainian exports? And what are the options for everyone else in the world in general to try and get a hold on this because this will push food prices sky high? Are there any um, kind of immediate things that countries that import those products can do? And then secondly, what about the, the world overall? What, what can be done? So uh, on one hand, what we want is to promote cooperation among countries to avoid panic, to avoid that exporters also start to put more and more export restrictions, as we have seen in 2007, 2008, and to make sure also that importers doesn't kind of compete for the same resources and just you know increase prices on top of each other. Uh, and so it's much more easy now to say than to do. No, even if you think about how people have reacted during the COVID-19, they are rushing to their supermarkets and they are piling stuff. And countries are doing the same. At the end, that's not really useful, but that's how uh, people and countries operate. So really uh, more cooperation and really a lot of restraint uh, in all these export restrictions will, will be key to avoid panic and make sure that markets uh, behave as we expect them to, to, to behave. So restraint. Then money is still going to be part of the story, meaning that you need to help some countries in the short term to pay for their import bill, and also for some countries to develop uh, to deploy a social safety net uh, that will protect their poor consumers. And here, targeting is an important word, meaning that you don't need to reduce the price of food for everyone everywhere. Uh, if you are a rich household, uh, you know, in advanced economies or even in Africa, you will adjust. To rising food price. Now, if you are a poor household uh, in the Horn of Africa, you already spend 80-90% of your daily income on food. So you don't really have a margin for adjustment except eating less. And that's the type of nuance that, that we need to see. Uh, last but not least, obviously, not all the food importers are in the same situation. If you take Lebanon today, Lebanon, they rely at more or less 75% of their food security on global and regional markets. Uh, it's a service economy uh, on the cost, so it makes, and in relatively in an arid area, so it makes a lot of sense on the normal situation to depend on this market. 
But right now, you don't really get much more money from uh, any of your normal business activities. And the situation is very different for Iraq, because Iraq also imports food, but Iraq has oil money. And with the current level of oil prices, actually, the Iraqi government has instruments and resources to manage the crisis in a very different way. So that's where also when we think about vulnerability of countries, you know, it's not because you are a food importer that you are in trouble right now. Of course, the situation is a bit more difficult, but if you also export energy product or a lot of the minerals that normally also uh, Russia export, you actually, uh, you can even be better off. And it's really much more how you, the government is going to manage and redistribute money around uh, than asking anyone to, to help them. So what should we be looking out for now? You mentioned the harvesting season and then the planting season. I mean, what, when will we know if things are starting to get better or starting to get worse? What are those key steps? So, um, so on one end, the situation on the ground uh, in Ukraine is going to be very important. Um, we all hope that conflict will stop as quickly as possible. And to some extent, people uh, in Ukraine, uh, just a parenthesis, in terms of food insecurity, people are in Ukraine are really also on the front line. You know, we talk about global food insecurity. But if you are a refugee or if you are uh, in an Ukrainian city right now, you have serious concern of food security. And Ukraine is 40 million people. So, you know, there is a global concern, but also there is a local concern. So conflict can stop. People can go back to normal. The question is how infrastructure will look like, you know, because even if you are a farmer that can go back to their field uh, as we are going to have fuel, but then even if they harvest the grain in July, can we bring this grain to uh, the port uh, on the coast? So how the uh, rail uh, infrastructure, railroads uh, actually operate, they have been already damaged. So planting, harvesting, and uh, trading from Ukraine as it's really a hotspot uh, of concern. But then around the world is, are we going to have uh, enough fertilizer for the farmers? You know, how we are going to manage a potential shortage of fertilizer this year is, is a big question mark and also on which we hope to see collaboration and rational planning and rational thinking, you know, just emotional response. David Laborde de Bouquet of the Food Policy Research Institute. Before him, you heard Saad Rahim, Chief Economist at Trafigura. Thanks to both of them for joining us on Radio Devils. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Editing was by Jerry Johansson. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.